0: Another episode of the I'm with RJ show, season three, with the masterful co-host, Billy McCarthy. How are you today, Billy?
1: I'm doing great, RJ. Glad to be here with you today.
0: Totally. I'm very excited to have our guest with us today. As somebody who has been enamored with cannabis for a long time, came up in the Oakland scene and the San Francisco scene once I got out of New York, Andrew D'Angelo, who's here with us today, is it's sort of like talking to a celebrity, a superstar, if you will, of cannabis, if such a thing could be said. And I think it can be said about you, Andrew. So welcome to the I'm with RJ show. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: Hi, RJ. Hi, Billy. Great to be with you and your listeners today. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Oh, yeah. For for those that have been living under a rock for the last 15 years or so, who is Andrew D'Angelo? Tell the people who you are on a quick level and then we'll dive into it. Sure. Many
2: of your listeners are probably a little more familiar with my older brother, Steve D'Angelo. So Steve D'Angelo is my older brother. He's 10 years older than me. So in many ways, I grew up in the cannabis movement and community. My brother started trading when he was a teenager and I was just out of diapers. So I grew up in the shadow of cannabis. And then once I got old enough and the moment was right, shall we say, my brother shared cannabis with me and it had an immediate transformative Effect on my consciousness and my outlook on life, my health, my well being and my sense of what's possible for me to do. I was in high school and I'd been an athlete and very few of us are gonna succeed at being a professional athlete in this world and I was not a good enough athlete to to be a professional athlete, but that was my first dream. So when that dream died because of injuries and a lack of natural athletic skill that you need to make it as a professional athlete, you know, I was bummed out. So my brother handed me a joint and said, said, it's time, and a little voice inside my head said, okay, I think he's right, it's time. So that was, my brother wasn't trying to force anything on me when I was growing up, and but he also wasn't hiding or lying about what he was doing. I was very lucky, because I had that guide. Those of your listeners who enjoy cannabis probably had a guide of some kind too. You have a story of that first encounter with the plant that usually another person, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a lover, shares with you for the first time and your journey begins. So I had probably the best guide anyone in the world can have. (laughs) And my brother and I decided before I even was done with that first joint, pretty much, I wasn't quite that fast, but it was pretty fast. We decided that we were going to do this together. So that was in the 1980s. a very long time ago and it was a much different time then with respect to cannabis it was you couldn't even wear a cannabis leaf on your shirt or a button or a hat or anything without major consequences happening to you in your life you could lose your job you could get piss tests you could get searched by police just for having a weed leaf on your clothing. That's what the environment was like in the 1980s. I remember I I wore a weed leaf during orientation of college because I I brought weed with me (laughs) to the dorms to sell. And I didn't know anybody. I had come from 3,000 miles away and I didn't know anyone. And I was like, I need to advertise (laughs) my goods here. So I'm going to wear this little it was this tiny little button, a weed leaf. You know, I, it couldn't be real big because I didn't want to be labeled a stoner. Of course, I was labeled a stoner very quickly just by having that. But I also met <laughs> my first customers very quickly by doing that too and literally in those days you had all these codes and maybe the code was a tie-dye t-shirt or maybe the code was a grateful dead steal your face uh sticker that you had on your backpack or maybe the code was uh, a word or a phrase that you said it's time to take a brisk walk andrew what do you think those little codes you would have with people and do you like to listen to reggae would be one of the first questions I'd ask as a freshman in college. What kind of music you like to listen to? I could tell by the answers if they were weed smokers. And then I'd say, let's go smoke some weed together. Let me show you what I got. And let's talk about this plant a little bit
0: because I sure love it.
2: And that's sort of my origin story.
0: So I wanna dive a little bit into that. Billy graduated high school in 97 and I was 2004. And so you must have, what, you were late 70s, early 80s? 85. 85. What was that like? I mean, Reagan is in full swing, obviously. Disco is dead. The dead are off kiltered for most of the (laughs) early to mid 80s. So there's some moments in there. But what was that like wearing a pop button under Reagan and going to college and selling? I I can't imagine that. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more about that. Just say no
1: to reggae (laughs) and brisk walks with Andrew.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's really ballsy in those days to be a cannabis advocate. It was a very ballsy thing to do, man. You had to have balls of steel in 1980s to carry on with this plant and this message and trade the plant because the consequences were serious. We had people come into our school and the whole school would be in the auditorium. And this guy would get up there. And he'd say, there are three kids that smoked a joint not two miles away from here. And two of them are dead today. And then he'd go off and he'd harangue for an hour about drugs and, and how marijuana will kill you. And, you know, that was just the wee part of the speech. Once he got to the coke and, and the crack and all of that part of the speech. And, of course, this guy claimed to be a former drug dealer himself and reformed and now clean and sober. And now he goes around and he gives speeches. Probably part of his probation deal was to give these speeches. God only knows. And he would scare the piss out of everybody in the school. And there would be kids that were crying that would go voluntarily after watching that guy and turn themselves in to the principal and say, Take my weed. I'm so sorry. And you know what that what would happen to them? They'd get fucking busted right there on the spot. And that's what would happen to them. And then they would be asked to snitch on their dealers and snitch on their friends, get everybody else busted too. So I was dealing weed in high school in that environment. And we would have police come in and lecture us. This wasn't just like once a year you had an assembly. This was like every week, every month in the library, in the auditorium, at the baseball game. They give a whole no on drug speech before you sang the national anthem for the frickin football game. That was the environment. If you wanted to play sports in your high school, you get piss tested. You have to pass the piss test. No weed heads would get on the sports teams because they couldn't pass the piss test. And then we started seeing that in the workplace. And we fought it. We took drug testing all the way to the Supreme Court and we lost. And and so that's why many of your listeners might have to pee in a cup to this day to keep their job, which is ridiculous when you're talking about cannabis and 90% of the jobs out there, you probably do better when you have a little cannabis in your system. (laughs) Airplane pilots and people like that, maybe not, but come on, man, let's get real. So that was the environment that we were in. That's why it was such a ballsy thing to do. The hammer came down on you, okay? I had to hide my weed in the dorm. I had a little string that went out the back window that had my stash in it because there are all these woods and, and bushes with thorns on them behind the dorm room. So I didn't have the weed in the room because they'd search it. And if they found the weed, you're done, man. You're kicked out of school. You're kicked out of school. Your loans, everything is gone. You're an uneducated worker at that point. And and then you have to go pass a piss test to get a job. And so cannabis people were being hunted down. That's what it was like. We were being hunted down. And that was me as a white man. So imagine if you're a person of color where these laws were passed to hunt you down in the first place. We were just collateral damage because we were a bunch of white kids that said, F you, we love weed too. Uh, and so we got caught in the crossfire and we got busted and we did our time too, and still are. That's why we have Last Prisoner Project. And we, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But so the environment was really hard, everybody. And, and you can't imagine it. If you went to high school, when you went to high school, RJ, it was a different time. And I don't know. What you had to deal with in high school is you had to deal with metal detectors and guns and people getting shot we did not have to deal with that we did not have shootings in high school when i was in high school so we did not have to deal with that we did have to deal with this drug war hysteria and getting searched and piss test left and right man left and right if you wore a grateful dead shirt to high school you were searched man your locker was searched your backpack was searched you were searched man and it was not like a light search. <laughs> You're in the principal's office. You are being pat down. Your pockets are being emptied. It's like getting pat down by the police. That's the environment we emerged out of. And, and we have to remember that. It's really important that I tell that story because we don't want to go back to that time. And we could if we don't do our job right.
0: So you go to college in the East Coast. Where did you attend, if you don't mind me asking?
2: I went to college in California. I went to uh, Chapman University in Southern California. I studied theater arts and communications. I grew up in Washington, D.C. area, so I was very far from home. My dad got a job for a year or two when I was just a young kid in California, and he lived in san diego for a year or two and i went and visited him and i fell in love with california as a nine or ten year old boy and i knew immediately that i was going to move here and live here and and make my life here and and move my whole family here i knew when i came here that was my destiny
0: so you go through college and then you know where does life take you from there are you basically just constantly in the cannabis industry throughout until prop 215 happens or or where, where does life take you Look, I
2: was trading cannabis. That's how I made money. And I was also studying theater arts. I wanted to be an actor. So my second dream in life after being an athlete was to be an actor. I keep having these dreams that are like impossible to attain because, again, only a very few select people have enough talent and luck, really. I had enough talent as an actor, but I just didn't have luck. You need a lot of luck and you need to know the right people. I didn't have the relationships in Hollywood. I didn't have the right agent. and didn't have the right access for my talent to be seen and heard right at that time. In those days, you couldn't really say, I'm in the cannabis industry. You had to hide all of that. And and theater arts, I was very good at hiding things because I was very good at acting, and I was very good at pretending, and I was very good at make-believe, and I was very good at costuming, and I was very good at keeping my cool under pressure because I trained to be an actor. And there's nothing more scary than being in front of people in a live setting and performing in front of them. It's a horrifying experience. and you have to learn to be relaxed when you're on stage, and that takes years of training. It took me years of training. To this day, I still sometimes get nervous and self-conscious, and when I am nervous and self-conscious, I don't do as good a job telling my own story or communicating with people, Uh, so it takes a long time to learn how to just relax, and that training helped me hide from the world. <laughs> Some actors wait on tables. That's their day, day job. Mine was selling weed. And unfortunately, everybody knew I sold weed. <laughs> I was proud of it. I talked about it to my actor friends and my artists and the people in my creative community. There was a lot of stigma. Uh, against cannabis and cannabis people, and I I, 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 fell into that a little bit, and and it was hard for me to make a living <laughs> as an actor, and so the cannabis trail was just more available to me to succeed and make a living. And then I, I went to acting school in San Francisco in 1989, 1990. Um, I got a scholarship. I was lucky. I got a scholarship to go to acting conservatory. Which talk about being a fish out of water, but I went to this acting conservatory in San Francisco, and that's where I met Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary and the whole medical cannabis scene, and I plugged into that, and that's and it was speaking to me more than the theater. I, I was going to the theater and I was performing for all these very privileged people and a lot older than me. They were coming to see me do Shakespeare and check off. and I wanted to do avant-garde radical theater and I did a little bit of that, but that almost bankrupted me on <laughs> more than one occasion. Because <laughs> radical avant-garde theater, you have to pay for it yourself; you don't get hired to do that. So I, I got strung out on doing DIY theater and film there in the '90s. But I was selling weed that whole time, and then and then my mom got sick when I was in grad school, and and my brother needed some help. My mom always had a hard time making a living after my parents got divorced. So my brother and later me, after I got done with acting school, I Went back East, I joined my brother and he already had a robust cannabis business at that time. And he already also had the beginnings of our first legal cannabis company, which was a industrial hemp company, a clothing and fiber company called Ecolution. We imported fine hemp products and made them into things, jeans mostly, and sold them. And that was our first legal cannabis company in in the 90s. And that company, unfortunately, succeeded in the beginning but then had a hard time competing with hemp out of china and so we were faced with the choice of either sourcing our hemp from china or pivoting and the medical cannabis scene was blowing up in california at that time and we had passed a law in washington dc a very similar law my brother and i pretty much single-handedly with a very small handful of activists put it on the ballot in 1998 we, we passed it in dc and then my brother got busted a couple of years after that. And, and we were so disgusted by getting busted. And I think my brother learned that he he had to get out of DC finally. I avoided getting busted with him because I had returned to California six or 12 months before that, because I, I guess I saw the writing on the wall or something. But I went back to LA and, and tried to restart my creative career because I just couldn't be on the East Coast anymore. And We had a giant wholesale weed business and it was dangerous (laughs) and our hemp company was ending and, and I was feeling like I needed to get back to California. So I came back here, my brother got busted, we lost everything and it took a number of years to recover from that. And my mom, bless her heart, may she rest in eternal peace, but she sold her house so that we could start our second legal cannabis company called Harborside, which we started in Oakland. And that was sort of our Hail Mary pass, so i got to tell you. We sold the house we grew up in to finance that, and we were coming out of being busted. And luckily the city of Oakland, man, they didn't have a felony restriction on that license. Thank God, or else we would not have gotten the license. And the rest is hipstery, as they say. And and so we were able to create something that people really love and still love. And that launched our careers. And now we're not with Harborside anymore. Now we've got Last Prisoner Project was our nonprofit organization. We're trying to get all the cannabis prisoners out of prison now that we've legalized pretty much everywhere in the United States and, and soon the world. And boy, that's a big job. So we launched that effort a couple of years ago. The cannabis community and industry, I'm proud to say, has responded really not as well as I would like. So we have to keep working on it. But, but we've raised a couple million bucks in a couple years from the cannabis industry, largely, and small donors like your listeners. And if they want to donate, you can go to lastprisonerproject.org and you can donate. There's also a lot of other organizations out there you can donate to, whether it be the Weldon Project or Cage Free Cannabis or Can Do Expungement. There's a whole bunch of groups doing the work. We all need to work together. We need to support all of them. And, and so it takes a village to get people out of prison. The criminal justice system is very good at what they do. And they've created a system that even if you're innocent of committing a crime or you've committed a crime that's no longer a crime anymore, as the case is with cannabis, it's impossible to get out of prison, man. It's impossible to get out of jail. Even if you're innocent, it's impossible if you've been convicted. So I can't say the word impossible, of course, because our job is to turn the impossible into the inevitable. That's what we're trying to do with Last Prisoner Project. The, the mission and the work takes lots of different forms of, and shapes for Steve and I. And now I'm selling my knowledge of selling weed more than I'm actually selling weed. It's funny how that
0: happens, right? The, the progression from hands-on to, okay, now Here's my knowledge and how that changes. So
1: I want to ask you about something you said there, Andrew. You mentioned that like in the acting community, there was a reluctance to cannabis and people weren't into it. Was that in the conservatory scene? Was that in the sort of classical theater scene or or was that across the board?
2: I was at a classical conservatory called the American Conservatory Theater, still there today, barely hanging on with COVID and everything. I went to that conservatory. The way they did it at our conservatory in those days is you would have these round tables where all of your teachers would be around a big conference table and you'd go in and you'd sit there and the voice teacher would start, and then the acting teacher, and then the fencing teacher, and then the yoga teacher, and then the singing teacher, and then all these disciples would go around and would critique your work. In those days, you had to be invited back each year to the conservatory. If you didn't improve, you get you wouldn't get invited back. It was pretty intense. You know, it's like a Juilliard kind of program it was in, in, in those days. And that very first round table session, the acting teacher, who was a guy that I could tell used to smoke weed, but didn't anymore. And he looked at me, he said, Andrew, thank God those stoner days are behind you. And <laughs> now, now that you're in the conservatory, You need to stop doing that. And we don't want to smell weed on you. And we don't want, we don't want to hear you selling weed to other students and people in here. And I'm like, whoa, they're talking about weed explicitly at my first meeting, but I was good at what I did and I made them look good with my acting. So I kept getting them back, despite the fact that they knew I did not stop smelling like weed, (laughs) nor did I stop selling weed, but it hurt my career because that stigma got around my neck. And, and when you're in a conservatory, you're paying them to teach you how to do great theater. Once you graduate and the great theaters companies of the world are paying you, that's when the stigma gets a hold of them. And they're like, is this guy going to be able to remember his lines? Are we really going to hire this guy who smells like weed, but can nail Hamlet like a motherfucker? Are we really going to hire him when we can hire this other guy that doesn't smell like weed, not quite as good at Hamlet, but good enough, they're going to hire the guy who doesn't smell like weed and who's not talking about weed before they hire the guy that is. If you talk to some of the people that I was involved with back then, they'd say, well, he just wasn't talented enough, had nothing to do with the weed. (laughs) And so maybe that is, in fact, the case. I do programs like I'm doing with you all the time. This is... Pretty much all I do is tell the cannabis story and tell my own story, and I do it well. So I know I could have had a career there. I'm actually quite grateful it worked out the way it did because being an actor is a very hard life. In fact, one of the guys I went to school with committed suicide uh, a year or two ago. He was a beautiful man. He really was. He was a Mormon (laughs) who had ran away from the church and found himself in the theater. And he was a brilliant actor. He was a very handsome leading man. And he worked, man. He worked at lots of big theaters. He wasn't a weed head like me. And maybe I'm still here and he's not because I was a weed head. When I read about him passing, I learned more about what he had done since we went to school together. It made me reflect on the choices I made in my life and, and maybe some of the things that either a lack of talent or too much stigma caused me to not have that career, maybe it was for the best. It's it, Unless you're Jack Nicholson, it's really hard life. It is a really hard life being an actor. You don't make a lot of money. You never have any security. You don't have good health care. You have no retirement. And it's just a very hard life. All my fellow actors out there, you have my
0: love and respect. So Steve getting arrested, was that in any way, shape, and form a catalyst for Last Prisoner Project, or is that something that maybe planted the seed for that to to come about? Sure, of course it did.
2: Look, it wasn't just Steve getting busted and me on much smaller incidents. I got busted twice. I have the distinction of getting busted in two different countries, but a lot of our friends went to prison, and a lot of people we worked with, we did business with, that we had to bail out of prison and mount legal defenses. One of the reason I'm still a middle class guy <laughs> is because I had to be there for those folks in that community. And we had to mount the legal defenses and we had to legalize weed and we had to spend all of our money doing that. And so it w- it's been the work of social justice and now social equity in cannabis. It's been around a long time. And we've had to do that work. And we probably should have started The Last Prisoner Project many years ago, but our activism and our entrepreneurial work took us to different paths. We we made different decisions and had different strategies. But now once we exited Harborside, we had enough bandwidth to start. And despite being still basically middle class, we had enough wealth at this point in our lives that we could start a nonprofit organization. It's a real luxury to start a nonprofit organization. It's a hard thing unless somebody gives you a grant so you can pay yourself a salary to start the organization. It's like a chicken or egg thing. How do you do it? So we were at a time in life where we were able to do it. And I'm now chair of the board at the Last Prisoner Project, which I hope not to be <laughs> too much longer, just because I think we need to get more diverse folks in those roles. But, but we're growing the organization. We got 14 people out of prison in January. All credit to the Trump administration. A hard thing to say, but they did do that. And I'm grateful that those folks are home. Trump didn't exactly do that, but somewhat. Michael Thompson's home. Michael Pelletier is home. A whole bunch of people are home now. Corvain Cooper is home. These are folks that were locked up for a long time. 10, 20 30 years, Michael Thompson, almost 30 years for, I think it was three pounds of weed in his case. That's, Harborside sells that much weed in an hour.
0: I I smoked that much this year already, I think.
2: Exactly. So it's like, come on, man. We're really gonna keep all these people in prison? And so that's why this work And even at Harborside, when we were in the medical nonprofit days, when we could really have a true community center, you could come in and write a letter to a prisoner and we'd give you a free gram of weed for writing a letter to a prisoner. That was Steve's idea. A lot of these ideas come from my brother, Steve, and he's a, such a visionary. And they organically come from very specific places and from our own specific experience. And so I think that helps make these models we've made more authentic, right? Because they they're coming out of a real struggle and resistance, and in some cases, suffering.
0: Yeah, I I think that's such a major point right now. And we're in such an interesting place in the history of cannabis, at least domestically, and in terms of the transition here from the Prop 215 model to what amounts to big air quotes around recreational cannabis. It's sort of like people are almost forgetting that people like you guys had to exist and and had to go through the things that you had to in order for them to go invest $200 million into a tech platform.
2: (laughs) Yes, we have to tell our own story and we have to remind folks that are making those investments of where all this comes from. We can't expect those folks from that community to do that on their own. I just don't think that's a fair expectation. People just are moving too fast these days and there's too much exuberance for us to expect that. But we do need to tell our own story, and I think we will. I mean, look at The Grass is Greener that Fab Five Freddy made, the the movie on Netflix right now. That tells our story. You're going to see a lot more content coming in, cannabis content, uh, whether it be Growing Belushi or Murder Mountain or whatever it is. And some of the authenticity of those programs can certainly be debated and questioned but the content is getting out there and people are watching it and it's getting more and more popular. When we did Weed Wars, it was very niche. We did get over 3 million people to watch all four episodes of Weed Wars, but Belushi gets that many now in one episode. I hope that Hollywood will, give us a little bit more access than we are right now so we can tell these stories. There's so many of them, that there's been so many people who have carried this plant. You go back to the Jazz Age and Milton Mesro and Louis Armstrong wrote a treatise about cannabis legalization. It's in a museum in New York and you have to go there to read it. You can't get it. So I haven't been able to make that trip since I learned about it because of COVID. But there's this this historical record and, and people like me and my brother are trying to bring that historical record a little bit more to the forefront. Most people know who Harry J. Anslinger is now. We need to make sure if your listeners don't know, that was the first drug czar, Federal Bureau of Narcotics chief He's the guy that made weed illegal in the first place. Uh, He was a terrible racist man, and he used prohibition to go after people of color, basically, and tried to destroy the jazz musicians because they were the first hamsters, really. In our country, they were the first people that really celebrated taking cannabis and being having cannabis as part of their lives and what they did with the plant and how it inspired their creativity and the music and the culture and the people and and the community. Talk about ballsy. I'm ballsy for selling weed in the 1980s. Are you kidding me? Cab Calloway singing about the reefer man in the 1920s. That's ballsy, or even past when it was made illegal. Those musicians were still singing, about cannabis being good. They were still talking about cannabis being good. They were still using cannabis on the daily. It was still inspiring their music. And they were really very early pioneers that we've forgotten about, right? As you as you mentioned, people don't even know. Louis Armstrong didn't drink. He was Cali sober. <laughs> and a whole bunch of jazz musicians, particularly ones that had longevity, didn't do dope or, or, or drink a whole lot. You know, but they often took copious amounts of weed. And so we just got to keep telling our stories, man. And I think we also need to set the expectation, RJ, as you just did. Hey, big investors, open a book and learn about this stuff. Go get The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Go read Jack Harrow. Go. There's so many books now that, that have been written about the history of cannabis and, and, and the cannabis plant. Terrific books. Smoke Signals is another great book. Martin Lee wrote that book. And we just have to keep telling our story and setting that expectation. And we can't let our history be forgotten and lost. Look at how well the African-American community has kept their history alive. And we have to do the same thing because the dominant culture
0: will not do it for us. Absolutely. I'm staring at uh, George Gervantes' book, The The Bible, The Girl Bible. Oh man, great book, (laughs) great book. I just uh, purchased it for a friend who is, is planning to do some outdoor cultivation this summer. So I gave him a few seeds, and, and he was like, I need help. And I was like, I, I will help you, but you need to read this book first, and then we, we'll go from there. Educate yes. yourself. Grow for life. Don't grow for a day kind yes. of thing. Like.
2: Yes, and I think your friend, if he or she sticks with it, they'll really enjoy it. There's nothing like growing and smoking your own weed. It's really a thrill. It's a unique thrill that people who love cannabis should experience.
1: So, I, I think it just keeps striking me as you made a couple points here. We talk about the jazz age. Listen, I'm the product of the 80s as a kid. I am infected with the thought that cannabis is a gateway drug. And I think it still lingers today in people's heads and it still is limiting where we need to go.
2: So, we've had this and it was a disaster. Alcohol prohibition was a disaster of epic proportions. And then we did it again with weed. Literally five or six years after alcohol prohibition ended, weed prohibition began. There is definitely a link between that. And prohibition just doesn't work. And so in the 20s, you could smoke weed legally but you couldn't drink. Imagine that environment, if you will. It's impossible for us to imagine. But if you just smoke a little weed and exercise your imagination and and think, okay, alcohol's illegal. There's signs all over, don't drink, this and that. It's evil, it's bad. There's all these PR campaigns. There's this giant organization called the Women's Temperance Union. That's a very conservative Christian organization. Very powerful, the most powerful organization in America in the 1920s was the Women's Temperance Union. They partnered with the religious right and the evangelical community, and that's how they got alcohol prohibition. That's how it got done. It wasn't a bunch of guys drinking that voted for that. It was women who were getting the crap beat out of them by drunk, abusive men, okay, because there was, after the Civil War, there was a lot of substance abuse, alcohol abuse, opium abuse, because people didn't have legs and arms, and I don't know, half a million people died in that war, something like that. Huge amount of people died in that war on both sides, and people drank to forget, We've got Jim Crow, we've got all this reconstruction. It was a very intense time and people were drinking a lot and people were doing a lot of other substances. The whole Edwardian age happened. And that's when drugs being fun became popular in the Edwardian era a little bit. It's so hard to imagine what it was like in the 1920s. And then they they changed the rules on you and they made booze legal and weed illegal. (laughs) and then you had all these people that loved weed because it was legal it was the only substance that that was accessible that was legal okay that wasn't like very addictive and harmful and then they switched the rules on everybody what are you gonna do go turn into a booze head and in fact a lot of people who grew up in the 80s when the drug testing started billy you might remember they did have to stop they did have to go back to being a booze head and it really hurt them man it really harmed their alchemy, their internal alchemy. It really hurt them. And so the drug testing, man, they got it done. That was a huge cultural impact, man. They got that done. They got people to stop having cannabis in their lives with drug testing. It was super effective.
1: Yeah, no, listen, you're right. And and when I was in high school, it was the same thing in the nineties. If you played a sport, you got drug tested, but that didn't (laughs) stop you from drinking 30 beers on Friday night. right. that's that's what you did. And that's arguably a Hell of a lot worse for you than the alternative.
2: Oh, it's not arguably. It's a fact. It's a physiological fact that it's a lot more harmful for you. Yeah. Drug testing. Do you still get drug tested if you play high school sports? Probably in some places. Or is that gone now? It's so expensive to drug test people. Do you know? I don't even know.
1: I I don't know. I know there's a lot of pledges and promises and this kind of stuff. I don't think the actual drug testing is still going on as much as it was.
0: 30, make right. you
2: sign an affidavit now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I never got drug tested to play sports okay. in high school, but I, I was, i to be blunt, I was straight edge. I, I didn't smoke weed until I was 20. So right. I, I took a long time to get there. And I often joke, I'm looking for the peace that I had when I was sober and there was no stress in my life. And I have to smoke weed to find that peace again. And it's funny what life, where you could be as, as a young child and so balanced and Uh, everything and then life happens (laughs) yeah you become an adult yeah life happens yeah so let's talk about harborside for a little bit here obviously a story to history weed wars as you mentioned earlier and and is it accurate to say that you were the first like weed television show is that accurate yeah yes we were the first
2: weed reality tv show called weed wars yes we were the first
0: so talk to people a little bit about Prop 215. And just generally, like you mentioned earlier, writing a letter and getting a free gram of weed. And like, could, could you imagine that occurring in today's? Somebody would have to pay the tax somewhere. But like, it's, it's just such a different concept. And I think, again, from a if you're new to this, and you never dealt with a nonprofit collective, if you never signed that form, give some people some insight here. I'm, I'm sure from yeah, your perspective, yeah. you would even educate me, which I would love.
2: Yeah, sure. So 215 passes in November of 1996. And nobody thought it was going to pass. We knew it was going to pass. But all the politicians came out against it. The Clintons came out against it. Janet Reno came out against it. The governor of the state of California at that time came out against it. The attorney general came out against it. All the senators came out against it. All the House of Representatives came out against it and we still won. Then the political class didn't know what to do. There is this law, it was very broad. It basically said you can grow, transport, sell and manufacture weed if you have a note from a doctor. And if you form a collective of many patients, uh, you can add all that together and basically sell as much weed as you want. Uh, and that was the framework that Dennis Peron brilliantly put together. And he knew that it had to be broad. He was so smart. But then, then all hell broke loose. And there was all these problems with criminal dispensaries and nobody regulated it. And it got to be kind of a little wild west. And some towns would let you have a dispensary. Other towns would raid you and shut you down right away. Most towns, the feds would also raid you and bust you. And then Jerry Brown, he became an attorney general and he said, this is crazy. I'm gonna create some guidelines. They were non-binding, the legislature and the governor never really passed any laws that would bind those guidelines to anybody, but they were still somewhat enforced. And one of the things he mandated in those guidelines was that the medical cannabis businesses and dispensaries and grows had to be non-profit. Of course, you couldn't go get a federal 501c3 non-profit license, but you had to operate as if you were a non-profit. And so that's what we all did and and we took that really seriously. And we were making money. We had a high volume dispensary and we had profits and we put them back into the community, which is what you're supposed to do with a nonprofit. So that's how the prisoner letter writing program came to be. We also had a care package program for people that were poor. We just give you free wheat. If you're on government assistance or you're on in public housing or you're on food stamps, we just give you gram and a half of weed every week. We had 500 people in that program. And every quarter we rotate the 500. So we bring some new people in who didn't get a chance to be in it. And there's some natural matriculation. Sometimes people would die. So we did that too. That cost a lot of money. We gave away millions of dollars of free weed that way between the prisoner program and the the care package program. Many millions of dollars of of free weed we gave away. And it felt great. Oh, wow. It was so cool. And we have these Working class people that were barely making it, man, and oftentimes sick at the same time. And we could give them weed. And they were so grateful. And they were so happy. And it helped their lives. Did some of them take that weed and go sell it? Maybe. And that's what the adult use law killed that program because they don't want it to track and trace everything. Now you can't give away free weed in the dispensaries anymore. You can't do that program anymore. Now, we did pass a law to fix that, but the fix was lame. And now you have to be a cultivator and there's all these hoops you have to go through to give away free weed to needy people. and No one could go through the hoops. So it just doesn't happen. And what a shame. What a shame because that I want that nonprofit model in the industry. And I want associations like they have in Spain that are nonprofit, that our community can have a closed loop. Nonprofit business where the people consuming the weed are also supporting the producers of the weed and we create a community center and it's not about making a lot of money and if we do make money we put it back into the community center and we create community instead of big business and now there's nothing wrong with big business go do it if that's what turns you on but there's a lot of people in our community that aren't good at that, that don't know how to do big business. They had to grind out small business their whole life, and now they can't get a license. So in California, the adult use framework has huge barriers to entry. During the 215 framework, you could literally make an edible out of your kitchen in your home, you could bring it to Harborside, and we'd sell it. We would do quality control, we might send it to a lab, and make sure that it didn't have any nasties in there, But we would sell it and pay you cash money. If you were on our shelves, you were selling hundreds if not thousands of units every month, and I'm telling you, RJ and Billy, hundreds of families were supported that way. Just in Harborside, we had 500 different vendors supplying us on any given day or week. Because we had, I don't know, 250 SKUs. We had clones. We had seeds. We had flour. We had joints. We had bait pens. We had 20 different kinds of hash. We loved weed, So we had a very big selection. (laughs) And that was one of our competitive advantages because we had to compete with the the legacy market or the underground market, if you will. And, And so having a large selection of lots of different products was one way to attract people to us instead of their neighborhood dealer. And of course, we tried to get the neighborhood dealers to join our team and grow weed for us and make things. And we did. We incubated many companies that are still in the market today. Oakland Extract, we incubated. Blue River, we incubated. Sue Taylor and the pharmacy, we helped incubate a lot of people. Helped Sue Taylor in the pharmacy. And this was a black woman in her 60s who now owns her own dispensary with her family. And that's a terrific story. So that's what we did. You had to incubate people. If you wanted weed on the shelf and you were selling a lot of it like we were, we gave micro loans to people so they could grow more weed. Sometimes those loans were paid back, sometimes they weren't, and that's okay. That happens when you're a bank. And we did that because the community needed it. And that was the 215 model, it was very community oriented. Those of us that took the job seriously and weren't moving a lot of weed out the back door and were taking the attorney general guidelines seriously and trying really authentically to create a safe, responsible industry that everybody in California could feel good about. We had that with 215. We really had that. And Prop 64, which was the adult use framework, completely destroyed it. And part of the whole story with Prop 64 is a long one, but we had lost an adult use ballot initiative in 2010 called Prop 19. And that was a much broader and looser and better framework, but we lost and and so when it came time to do do it again, a lot of the consultants and the governor and the Democratic Party in California and all these people advised us that we had to have a different kind of framework and that only by having taxes and local control and all these regulations could we legalize weed. And we believed them, unfortunately. We put a framework together that we thought could win and we were told by people like Governor Newsom and the Democratic Party in California that we'd be able to fix it. Anything that was screwed up, we'd be able to fix it. And it's okay. It's not perfect. Let's get it on the ballot. You got to win. You lost last time. If you don't do this, you're not going to win. And it's a disaster. We gave the local people power to ban cannabis. Guess what they did? They banned cannabis. 60% of the state is banned. We gave the people of the power to tax. What did they do? They overtaxed. You give Democrats the power to tax, they're going to kill you. And so they did. And now the price of legal weed is 50, 40, 30% higher, in some cases, 100% higher than the underground weed. People's incomes don't go up that fast, if at all. So what are they supposed to do? Something that costs $50 in uh, prop. 215 model, same exact product, now costs 80 or $90, and the Prop 64 model, what are they going to do? They're going to go underground, is what they're going to do. And so 75% of our transactions in California are still underground, and this is four years after 64. And all this, these politicians that worked with us on 64 promised that we create one market uh, and all of our people would be able to be in it. And that's just not true. That's just a lie. That's not what has happened. And we've tried to reform 64. I was in Sacramento for three years on the board of the California Cannabis Industry Association, an organization I helped start <laughs> so we could have some representation in Sacramento. And for three years, we tried to fix 64 and we lost. Every bill we ran to fix 64 lost with one party rule in Sacramento, with one party rule in Sacramento, the Democratic Party. And we could not and still have not fixed 64. Now, I'm hopeful that with the recall of Governor Newsom, that we have a little bit more to leverage. Will we use it? Probably not, because we're very nice. And and that's a hard knuckle political strategy. We would basically have to say, we're going to vote to recall you unless you fix 64 before November, and then we'll vote for you. That's the deal. That's the heart. That's politics. You want to win in politics? That's what you have to do. I'm prepared to do that. I'm going to write about this actually in Forbes. I like Newsom. He's a talented, progressive politician. Whoever replaces him is going to be worse. But he's been terrible on this 64 issue. I'm sorry. He has been terrible. We could have fixed it if he leaned into it. We could have fixed it with his support. They were good bills we ran. We would have taken the control away from the local people and we would have lowered the excise tax. And it was there. It was all right there. And all he had to do was endorse it and rally the troops in Sacramento and get on the phone and say, it's time. And he did not. He did not. And he let us get chopped up to pieces and fragmented and our unity's not there. And we've got all these different trade associations, and all these different activists they are all trying to do the same thing in a little bit different way. And so I'm prepared to do this hard knuckle strategy. I'm just a private citizen now. I'm not part of the CCIA. I'm not part of a licensed cannabis company anymore in California. I'm just a private citizen. But I'll tell you, as a private citizen, maybe I can do more by articulating a strategy like this. Yes, it's hard knuckle. Yes, you're going to have to be mean to Gavin Newsom. And I like Gavin Newsom. I don't want to be mean to Gavin Newsom. But this is politics. And we're now political operatives. We're not activists anymore. It's legal. We won the war. We've lost every battle since then. And if we don't start winning these battles, our community is gonna get pushed farther and farther underground. And there's gonna be a war between the suits and the stoners, man. And it will be mutually assured destruction. It will not, no one can win that war. I'm sorry. We have to build a bridge between these communities. Somehow we have to do it. It's gonna be very hard. We're gonna have to sacrifice. But I know what it's like to sacrifice. I've done it, and it's worth it. It's worth it when you heal somebody with cannabis, when you change somebody's life with cannabis, and it completely transforms them. That feels good. That feels good that you did that, that you were a part of that. It feels just as good as making money. It does, man. It does. I made a lot of money in my life. (laughs) I've had a billion dollars of weed, literally. A billion dollars worth of weed passed through my hands. Harborside alone, 500 million, passed through my hands, okay? And it doesn't feel as good as somebody coming up to me and saying, you saved my life. You saved my life. Thank you. Or you got me out of prison. Thank you. That's what feels really good. That's what makes you sleep good at night. And yeah, selling weed and making money, that's a thrill too. So I'm sure all your listeners know about that. <laughs> you're, not, if you're, you're probably listening to this. You're in the weed game one way or another, but I'm here to tell you as somebody who's also lost a lot of money (laughs) and have had terrible things happen. My exit from Harborside was a disaster that we debuted at $6 and nine months later, we were at 20 cents and that's my future. That's 15 years of my work, fucking from $6 to 20 cents. Now we're crawling our way back up to $2, I think now, but man, that was brutally hard and it still is brutally hard. But I still, (laughs) despite that pain and suffering, it still feels better to work on the righteous parts of cannabis. And we have to transact because we all have to live and provide for our families. There's a bigger thing to cannabis than just transacting it, a much bigger thing.
1: Andrew, there's a lot to unpack in that, but let's start here. In the model you describe, right, there's three groups there's activists, there's big business, and there's government. It seems to me, especially in California, where you went from a model where a group of like-minded people were able to get together and do something good for their community, for their fellow Californians, to government dictating how that was supposed to work. There's not three groups there. There's really only two. Government is the facade for big money in every aspect in our country so isn't maybe the right answer that the activists need to co-opt the government and people who have been around who understand these issues intimately who understand how to connect with people in the community have to cross that Rubicon and become the government to get us really to the next level and yes I'm looking at you while I'm saying this Andrew <laughs> I thought I
0: thought you were going to announce your run for governor I, I- If you do it here, Andrew, we're not mad about that.
1: Look,
2: if I made such an announcement within 24 hours, all the videotapes would be posted and um, my candidacy would be destroyed. Uh, (laughs) We had a lot of fun when we were younger. Uh, But look, I I agree with you. I think that the progressive revolution and people that hold our values is happening. There are elected officials like AOC in, in elected office now. I'm not the person to play that role because I think my role is is different than that. I think I can create more change outside the political system. As I mentioned, I was up there in Sacramento for three years, man. I was pressing the flesh with all those Democrats and I was smiling and being real nice. I had my tie on, my suit, and I was trying to be like them and I was talking about change and it didn't work. If I thought I could run for office and one, win, (laughs) and two, not get destroyed by the just the political environment, my mental health, (laughs) and so forth, I'm not disciplined enough. I get angry and quickly. (laughs) And I have to really think about strategic ways of creating change. And I don't think I can create the kind of change inside the political system as I can outside of it. But I do think that. Progressive people need to run. You're right. And we need to articulate our ideas. I don't know if all of our ideas will work to make the world a better place and society a better place. Anyone who says that their ideas will work is just an arrogant fool. We don't know. We're going to try. It's looking like things like universal basic income work. It seems like that idea works. The data out of Stockton and the studies out of Stockton, that program that was done by Mayor Tubbs down there, was a very successful program. We're seeing direct payments to all Americans happening during this pandemic. And that's a progressive idea. That's not a conservative idea. That's not a right-wing idea. That's a left-wing idea. That comes from our community and our people. Will it work? Well, I hope so. Because we need something to work. People are poor and their wages aren't going up. They're in poverty and they're suffering. And we can end poverty in this country. We have the wealth to do that. Everybody can be middle class here. I, I think you're absolutely right, Billy. I'm not the person to, to be the government, but I will certainly support, donate to, be next to, and celebrate. I love AOC and the whole squad. I love all them. I, I support them. I send small donations to them uh, when I can. And I hope everyone else will too. We do have to make sure our, our ideas work and look at what's happened to the cannabis industry with our taxes. Taxing people is not always the answer. And and sometimes the Democrats and the left-wing people think that's the answer. And you know what? We know from personal experience, it's not the answer. It's part, It may be part of the answer, OK, but that is not the answer. And so the, the promise of not just the cannabis revolution or renaissance, my brother says the cannabis renaissance, I think it's a better word. We're going to leave revolution to the right wing people, I guess <laughs> now. But in any case, the renaissance, I think there's a progressive renaissance happening in the country, too, where people are really looking for political so- solutions that are different than the, the boilerplate. Republican boilerplate, Democrat, two-party system solutions, whatever we think of Trump and the Republicans, at least they're trying something different with Trump. And it's different in a way that's horrifying, but it is it is a transformative movement that's happened there. And it's something we both have to watch and learn from. But I think more and more progressives will be elected. And when the oceans start rising and these calamities start happening, maybe our ideas will be taken more seriously. We got to get off fossil fuels. That's going to be the big thing that we got to get off of. And we're all strung out on it. I've got solar on the roof of my house, but I still burn natural gas to heat my home, and it's hard to to not use petrochemicals, no matter how progressive you are. We have to get off it. So hopefully our ideas will work and, and scale. And, and when they don't, we need to be humble enough to say it didn't work. That's the thing with Prop 64 and the adult use framework. We have to be grown up enough to say it didn't work. You go to the Democratic Party and go, oh, well, the voters voted for it. There's nothing we can do. And it's not true. There's plenty that they can do. And there's plenty we all can do. And we have to do it. (laughs) So, yeah, Billy, let's take over the government, man. I'm all for it.
1: All right. We'll get that scheduled for the next call.
2: (laughs) Owner party, giving America exactly what they want.
0: That's it. That's all it is. Where do I sign I'll sign up. I'm young. I'm ready to go.
2: (laughs) Yes. We have no leaders and you cannot donate more than $4.20 to the party. Uh, and there's no leaders at all. And there's only one, there's only two words in the platform. Legalize we. <laughs> Almost everywhere. Three words in, in the platform and no leaders. And we'll take $4.20. Thank you very much. I, I, I would think a lot of people would
0: donate to this. I really do. <laughs>
2: We might be the biggest thing on earth, man. Uh, I mean. <laughs> We jest, but I tweet yeah. about this because people say they get frustrated and I'll write the cannabis party, giving Americans exactly what they want or the cannabis party, the only thing Americans agree on and how to turn America purple, <laughs> vote green. You know, I do ingest talk about that, but I do think that there is some seriousness to it because I, we might be able to create a global cannabis tribe and network that's interconnected to each other. That actually has a lot of economic and political power. If every time I drink my coffee, I put hemp milk in it and every time everybody drinks their coffee, they put hemp oil in it. I like to put oil in my coffee. It's good for you. And if we all do that, Guess what's going to happen to the sales of hemp milk and hemp oil? And guess what's going to need to be planted more? And guess what sequesters carbon better than anything? (laughs) And so you begin to see the interconnectedness of this and, and the power that our community has if we can all just find a way as individualistic as we all are. And I don't want to lose that. I love that about our community. Can we all move in the same direction at once? And if we can, we could probably create our own economy and our own society if we wanted to, separate from everybody else, because there's so many of us. There's literally billions of us now, certainly hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who have cannabis in their lives on the daily, man. And that's real power. And it's not powered like trying to be imperialists. It's plant imperialism. It's plant
0: medicine imperialism. It's, that's the secret weapon, right? It's probably the longest episode we've done. And I feel like we're just getting started. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pause on it. Uh, I'm gonna we might as well just call this part one. We'll see you in two weeks or something and come
2: we'll right, yeah.
0: from there. I have a million questions still, but let's put a pause on it here and do some media shout outs. Where can people find you? Websites, all that good stuff.
2: Sure. Lastprisonerproject.org is the one that's closest to my heart right now. But if you want to talk to me about consulting or strategic advisor or being a mentor for your organization or company or you, your yourself. you can reach out to me at andrewd'angelo.com. And my email is andrewd'angelo.com. Easy to find on LinkedIn, Twitter, IG, Andrew under slash D'Angelo on IG and Twitter, and just Andrew D'Angelo on LinkedIn. And it might take me a day or two to get back, but I'm pretty uh, responsive to folks. I like being in contact, so don't be shy.
0: Very good. All right. Part one, folks, we're, we're going to force this gentleman to come back and talk to us some more Andrew D.Angelo, thank you so much. We will hopefully talk to you soon.
2: Oh yeah, anytime, Billy and RJ'd be happy to come back on. Let's let's do awesome.
0: it. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. All
2: right.